The 2004 film Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is woefully underrated and almost forgotten 16 years after its release, which is a pointed irony if you know anything about the movie. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind stars Oscar winner Kate Winslet as Clementine and Jim Carrey, who is surprisingly good in serious roles, as Joel. As the film begins, Joel wakes up foggy-headed and skips work and seemingly on a whim takes a train to Montauk, the last stop on the very tip of Long Island. In a manner the film conveys almost palpably, Joel knows dimly that something is amiss. He has forgotten something. The forgotten something is important and momentous, but he can't recall what it is. Joel is off balance and adrift without keel or mooring. Deuteronomy, the fifth and final book of the Torah, serves as the Torah's retelling and renewal. Deuteronomy is an extended speech as from the mouth of Moses recounting to the Israelites their relationship with God and explaining what it means to live completely dedicated to that relationship. And right in the middle of Deuteronomy, right in the center, Moses describes the four offices that are necessary to shepherd the Israelites. The first office is that of judge whose job is to administer the law and meet out justice fairly. The second office is the king, who both keeps order and is a symbol of the ideals of the people. The third office is the priest, who leads worship, makes sacrifices, and serves as pastor to the people in need. These three roles are perhaps self-evident. For any, I recognize that what I'm about to say is a little self-justifying. For any people, these three roles are indispensable. <laughs> Without the judge, the world would be arbitrary. Without the king, the world would be chaotic. Without the priest, the world would lack succor. The fourth office is that of the prophet deemed by God to be as important as the judge and the priest and the king. And it is about the role of the prophet that we read in Deuteronomy this morning. Now the prophet's essential role in the life of a people may be less obvious than the other three offices. Indeed, in ancient Israel, though there were court prophets like Nathan, who sat at the right hand of King David... The prophets were usually outsiders. Think Hosea, or Amos, or Jeremiah, who the king and the people would prefer to have been rid of. The prophets were nuisances and gadflies who repeatedly questioned the king's decisions and the people's way of life. So what is a prophet? Well... 
Unfortunately today, we too often associate the term with fortune-telling or future-predicting. So the wacky and malleable predictions of Notre Dame, for instance, those are called prophecies. Or certain sects within Christianity seek to read the Bible as a code book of opaque future-oriented prophecies waiting to be deciphered. But see, neither of those notions gets anywhere close to what the Bible means by prophet or prophecy. So please give them up. A short aside here, as the men in the Wednesday morning Bible study will know, I have a short list of gross misconceptions that I hope to help people shed over the course of my ordained career, and this is really close to the top. So what then are prophets, really? They are those who tell the truth. That's the beginning and end of prophecy. In Scripture, at times, it does seem that prophets are harbingers of doom. But why is that? It's because the prophet has the courage and the commission from God to tell the people the truth about their actions, about their commitments, about their plans, and about the consequences of all three. And when those plans are hell-bound towards destruction, then the prophet's truth-telling, it comes across as bad news. But it isn't the prophet's intention to convey doom and gloom. After all, some of the most soaring and hopeful passages in Scripture also come from the prophets. Think of Isaiah's vision of the wolf and the lamb, or of the heavenly banquet. Or consider Martin Luther King Jr., a true modern prophet, and his vision of the beloved community. Prophets tell the truth, God's truth. And so, what is that? The truth is that the world that we live in most of the time, in which we make our decisions and choose our paths and react and respond to others, is an illusion. It is not what God intends. It flows not from the heart of God. And thus it is not real. Now, we recognize that dimly, I think. The illusion and the artificiality of the world through which we walk is why we, like the main characters in the film, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, carry with us through our days that dull but ambient anxiety. Don't you know what I mean? It is why that we so often, without any clear object, are confused. It's why we take note that things seem to be broken. But we can't pinpoint why or how. Or how exactly to repair them. Well, back in the movie... Eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. It turns out that both Joel and Clementine have earlier paid a company called Lacuna 
to erase their memories. See, Joel and Clementine had met in Montauk. They'd fallen in love. But it turns out love is hard. Love is work and self-giving and acknowledgement of wrong and sacrifice. Clementine's and Joel's relationship became so strained that they chose to cancel love, to banish its presence and even its memory from their lives, to live as amnesiacs. They scrubbed their minds clean, believing that a spotless mind would be eternal sunshine. What the main characters quickly learn, however, is that such willful amnesia results not in light, but in confusion and anxiety and a discomfiture that is gnawing and ever-present. Letting go of love seems at first to be simpler, the easier route, but that proves to be desperately wrong. Such willful ignorance casts a shadow that is a pall over everything. Without love, the world is false and confused. Without love, sunshine is just an illusion. Now, I doubt that it is a coincidence that the filmmaker named his main character Joel. Joel is, after all, another of the Bible's prophets, another of its truth-tellers. And so, in Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, despite the supposed erasure of his memory, Joel can't shake the feeling that the world through which he now walks is broken. Something has been forgotten, and it must be remembered. And so, in Joel's confusion, he lumbers and careens through shadows where he thought there'd be sunshine. He can't abide the falsity, the amnesia, the brokenness, the sorrow. And so even in his confusion, he doggedly seeks the truth. Until miracle of miracles, he rediscovers and he speaks it. Joel and Clementine find one another again in Montauk. And they commit this time to live in light of the truth. And to do the hard work of love. There is, as Canon Stein and Canon Zartman will know, there is a moment in the Eucharistic liturgy that is called the anamnesis. Anamnesis. It means the opposite, the contrary of amnesia. It means to remember. The words are different depending upon which Eucharistic prayer we're using. 
But the anamnesis always comes right after the priest has rehearsed the story of Jesus and his friends in the upper room. And see, then suddenly, as if we are waking from a dream or shedding an illusion, we all proclaim, we remember. We remember his death. We proclaim his resurrection. We await his coming glory. We remember. That's the first step in prophecy. To be prophets all, we have to awaken from our confusion and our willful forgetfulness of God's intention for the world. We must recognize that we, we, consciously or subconsciously, have sometimes decided to abandon love, love for ourselves, and love for our intimates, and love for those who are different from us in the world. We have come up with all sorts of rationales for why life will be easier and simpler and spotless without love. We have convinced ourselves and lapped into amnesia for who God truly is and what God intends for his world. We must remember. Remember that God is love and calls us to love. The very word remember means to knit back together that which is frayed and separated. Remembering is the first step. And then, as the prophet does, we must speak the truth. We must tell it both to ourselves and to the world, recognizing That depending upon the depth of our forgetfulness, the truth may seem like bad news before it is revealed to be the good news. Because awakening and remembering will require that we become different. Love is hard, it's not easy. Love is work and self-giving and acknowledgement of wrong and passive complicity in wrong and sacrifice. But love is also light. It is the ever and only truth. And speaking that truth is the way we awaken ourselves and others to it. It's the way the world begins to shed its amnesia and knit its frayed edges back together. The author and poet L.R. Nost understands that light is to be found in the recollection of love, not in its forgetting. She articulates our calling to the office of prophet in these days. So let me leave you with her words. Do not be dismayed, 
by the brokenness of the world. All things break. All things can be mended. Not with time, as they say, but with intention. So go. Love intentionately, extravagantly, unconditionally. The broken world waits in darkness for the light that is you. Amen.